Hello and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's show we have Ryan Davis. Ryan Davis has been running the Mummers Festival since 2009. He holds an MA in Folklore and BA in Communication Studies. It was his interest in festivals, celebrations, and costuming that led him to mummering traditions. The Mummers Festival promotes the continuation and evolution of traditional arts and performance by encouraging active participation in mummering activities. The Mummers Festival helps to keep mummering alive and contemporary, and one of the traditions the Mummers Festival has helped to safeguard is the hobby horse. With its devilish spirit and snapping jaws, it might not be the first thing one associates with the season of comfort and joy, but it is a centuries-old part of the Yuletide season in Newfoundland and Labrador. Today, we're chatting with Ryan about all things hobby horse. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dale. I think you are officially the first person to be twice on Living Heritage podcast. No way. You I love being on the radio, <laughs> <laughs> so this is great. Well, we're, we're delighted to have you back here. I, I, we'll, get into the, we'll get into the Mummers Festival and whatnot, but maybe to start off with, uh, we should have a little discussion about what a hobby horse is, because uh, some people who might listen to this show are not necessarily from Newfoundland. They might be listening to it uh, downloaded somewhere else, and, and they might be thinking that when we're talking about a hobby horse, we're talking about the child's toy hobby horse. Right. That is not what we're talking that about. That is not okay, what so, we're talking about. So uh, what, is, what is a hobby horse then? Well, um, a hobby horse in Newfoundland and Labrador is a sort of a creepy horse puppet that uh, is worn during the mummer season. Now, w- what I found out is that it's not so popular. In, pra- in fact, it's probably almost non-existent now. But it was a popular thing in the 1800s, 1900s, early 1900s. And um, and basically, uh, it involves wearing some sort of a figure, some sort of an animal figure, uh, typically mounted on a stick. Uh, it would have some sort of a cloth attached to wear over the body uh, and often a hinged jaw that you could attach a string to and make snap. Uh, so that's kind of the description. Uh, they've been made out of all kinds of materials from like real heads, like real Cow like the, heads. Like the skull of an animal. Yeah. Not even just the skull, like the actual head. Too. Oh, really? So, yeah, like the skull, the head, uh, the fur. Uh, I think as uh, time went on, they moved to junks of wood uh, and co- would cover those in fur. So it seems like there were lots of different uh, materials used to make these. But what they had in common was that they were typically mounted on a stick. You wore it as if you were the animal itself. And uh, and it would have the snapping jaw. Yeah, yeah. And and there was a certain hobby horse attitude. Yeah, they were real tormentors. Uh, I know that um, they loved to chase people. I mean, they if you can imagine, like I try to imagine, an actual like severed head on a stick would be <laughs> very scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that people took took advantage of that and uh, decided they were just going to really terrify people. So. I know that that's definitely part of the attitude. Um, And in accounts that I've read in archival material, they've been known to rip tablecloths off tables. Uh, I read one account where they they stole a a boiler of soup off a a stove and took that away. They peed on floors using water bottles. Um, And yeah, known to just scare people. Yeah, so it really was this element of chaos that would come in. I mean, mummers themselves 
have kind of a you know a, a questionable history <laughs> you know like they there there is this kind of element of violence and disorder with mummering in general but but hobby horses are that kind of to the 10th degree <laughs> taking it to the next level yeah <laughs> so what i understand is that they would typically uh, there would be um if there was a hobby horse out during mummering there would typically be one amongst a group of mummers right uh and they would often lead the charge to get into this house wherever they're going so yeah 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 and and this is um this is an old tradition here in newfoundland i i, I know from my own research with with hobby horses that um that it that there were references to hobby horses here in the 1500s, uh, you know, Sir Humphrey Gilbert, when he came, there's a, there's a reference to bringing a hobby horse, which I think at that point was kind of associated with the Morris dance tradition in, in England. Um, but then you were saying that today it, it isn't really um, as much of a living tradition as it was a couple generations ago. That That's this, right. That, that it is something that has kind of faded yeah. yeah, and do you think that that kind of mischief, mischief, mischievousness is is a reason why it, it isn't as popular? Um, I think it might also. Um, I actually don't know. I I know that mummering in general isn't as popular as it used to be. Yeah, um, and I think that the decline in mummering is probably often tied to the fact that our communities are not so insular and not so isolated as they used to be. So the idea of letting a group of strangers into your house. Um, was not as daunting in an earlier stage, whereas now there's a certain level of um, caution. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's probably, over the last few decades, led to its decline. Uh, and perhaps with that, some of the um, lesser-known or less popular elements almost disappearing. That, right. But as to why, I'm not sure. I know that, um, like, for... For the Mummers Festival and uh, for a lot of our programming, we have relied heavily on the archival material that's in the folklore archives. Uh, a lot of work done with questionnaires in the in '66 and '67, where they uh, literally went out with these questionnaires for students to ask about customs, and so that information um, describes the tradition in the like I guess the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and that, and 60s. And it seems that even in, I mean, there was definitely a tradition of hobby horses then, but it was still a smaller part of the overall tradition. Yeah, and there yeah. were certainly communities where it was known and then communities where it was never, ever practiced. And seems. they might be side by side. And And what I found interesting in this archival material is that I think of the 343 communities that these questionnaires went to, uh, 80, I think the hobby horse was in 80-something of those communities, and they were spread out all over the province. There wasn't a specific geographical area. Right. Yeah. And it wasn't just um, horses. Like, there were other types of hobby animals. Yeah, so there was, like, the hoppy cow, and they used um, pigs, skulls, and goats, rams, and they had all kinds of hilarious and funny names, like uh, lop jaws, slop jaws, Horsey hops. Uh, the, I think there's probably a dozen different names for these strange horses. Yeah, I, I remember. There's you, you talked about the the folklore archive, and there was this amazing thesis that was done. I think in the 70s, uh, um, Margaret Robertson, I believe, uh, yeah. who had who had done this research and had gone through the archives and had compiled all this stuff. And and some of them, 
Um, some of the things that she was describing seem so strange now that you would let this thing into your house, <laughs> you know, at Christmas time. And I remember one of the ones, you know, that she talked about was um, a barrel that basically it was a wooden barrel that had a pig's head kind of nailed to the barrel, and then and that was the that was the mummering costume, you know. And you know, I you know, I think. I, we have again in kind of this century we are a little bit more distanced from you know where our food comes from and so like animal husbandry and and butchering isn't something that we are all that familiar with on a, on a personal basis we're quite but removed from that we right? are quite removed from it but but there was a time when you know christmas was the time of year when you would quite often slaughter animals uh, that you would have fresh meat for christmas uh, i remember doing uh, having a conversation with a woman whose favorite christmas memory or favorite christmas smell was pig's blood <laughs> you know that you know we, won't, we don't think of that as a great christmas smell but it was because that was when her father would slaughter the pigs and and make uh, blood pudding you know right. that they would have blood pudding for christmas that was their that was their christmas treat so so this um this idea of you know having skins and animal parts available at that time of year uh was something that would i think would have been much more common in the past than it than it is today yeah, yeah and it's you know from the descriptions i mean it might be slightly biased that people report the most uh, amazing just things sure, that happen yeah. at mummering but from those descriptions that you read the tradition was really quite elaborate and people did go to great lengths to prepare for these for the the 12 days of mummering and you know you some of these horses would often be two people um making a giant horse and it seemed like there was yeah just a lot more involved in the preparations than than there is today yeah so the mummers festival has been running since 2009 and and i know that the hobby horse workshops have been a part of that since the very very beginning that that building hobby horses, training people on how to make hobby horses has always been part of the festival. That's right. Why is that? Why, why, why is that an important part of the festival? Um, I think that, well, I personally like the idea that the Mummers Festival um, captures all the different variants of the tradition. Uh, I think that Probably since Sim and I put out his mummer song, we became uh, very clear of what the most popular form of mummering is, but that there's, but there is actually more beyond the um, putting on mutters 42 bra and, and dancing around, uh, and that there were these other traditions like ribbon fools um, and hobby horses, and I think we just wanted to make sure that part of the tradition didn't disappear completely. I mean, it's ideal for us to find people who remember this tradition and have them involved in passing on their knowledge. Um, in the case of the hobby horse, we found that pretty difficult. Um, and in the end, we end up relying on archival material to do that. But uh, the reason is just that we want to keep all those elements somehow integrated or not to keep them there, but to see if they have um, if these parts of the tradition can find a new life somewhere, in right. a, perhaps in a new context. Yeah. Uh, the tradition has also shifted a bit. You, you, we were talking about how, uh, you know, these were made out of animal parts or animal hides, and then, you know, the heads were carved out of junks of wood. And you can't do that in a kid-friendly <laughs> workshop in, in two or three hours. I mean, there yeah. are certain constraints that you have with a workshop. I know. Think about all the heads we'd have to I know, chop a, for that workshop. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of messy, <laughs> messy stuff. 
Um, so when the when the very first hobby horse workshops were were put off, uh, you shifted the. I guess the construction technique a, a little bit and kind of came up with a, a way that you could teach this and have it be a workshop that someone could complete in, in a couple hours. Okay. So, so walk me through that process. How did, how did you come up with the first kind of template or idea for doing a cardboard uh, hobby horse? Yeah, well, um, my first step was to go back to the folklore archives where they had a couple hobby horses that were made by people probably in the 60s, 70s. Um, so I looked at those. I looked at the design. They were made of wood. One was a junk of wood, which was uh, quite heavy and seemed like not a practical thing to use for a parade setting, especially if kids were going to be interested because it's a, just a heavy thing to carry. Uh, there was another one that was constructed of like pieces of wood, but it was nailed together to make the shape of a horse. And that one seemed to be slightly lighter and um, and it was that initial horse that we used to base the template off of for the Hobby Horse Workshops. Um, I took some photographs and met with Kathleen Perwick, who was uh, at the time with the Lantern Festival, and they're involved in making puppets and other things for their festivities. Um, we looked at the pictures together, and then uh, Kathleen thought, hey, why don't we try something with cardboard? We started folding and cutting and duct taping and hot gluing until we'd come up with something that looked like a hobby horse and thought, hey, this is great. Um, and then we just, after put it together, we ripped it apart again and then kind of looked at what we had made. And then from that designed a template that would probably involve six or seven folding steps and duct taped it together. And then... We problem solved the um, snapping jaw by getting pieces of wood uh, cut that would fit the cardboard template and that would give weight to the jaw. Um, and then we were literally, well, not literally, figuratively <laughs> off to the races. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and I I know that uh, that process has evolved. You've kind of streamlined it. Like I, I remember the first templates, there were lots of like tabs and folds and whatnot. And and I guess over the years of doing this, you've kind of perfected it in a way. Like you've kind of streamlined yeah. the process and and you've you've we were just talking <laughs> earlier about um you know, you used to use these cardboard templates, but now you have a, a metal template that yeah. makes it easier. Yeah, yeah. We've really streamlined it. We figured out what needed to be essential in the template and what we could get rid of. Uh, we're trying to simplify it so that people can get in and make a horse in a few hours and get out. And um, yeah, this year I uh, had a um, a metal template created because over the years we would use a cardboard template and use that and then you would trace a template off a template off a template and then they started to look a little like I mean it's nice to have a misshapen horse but this is <laughs> getting a little too much so we yeah designed this um, metal one and had a had a guy out in um, Whitless Bay sorry Bay Bulls uh, make one with C&W Industrial and it works like a charm Right. Yeah. So that allows you to, uh, uh, instead of having to trace and then cut, you can just cut 
uh, the the outline in one in one go. Yeah, it just gets laid right on the cardboard, and you run a box cutter all along the edges, and then we've got a few fold lines that are um, get scored, and then that's it. So it's very simple now. Yeah. So so when people come to a, a hobby horse workshop, they they start off with their their piece of cardboard. It's kind of folded and taped or glued together. There's a a, a wooden piece that kind of or two wooden pieces that fit in that make the, right. the snocking kind of jaws. That's right. And then what? Then what happens? Uh, yeah, there's usually three stations. The first is to the folding and the taping. The second is the making of the mouthpiece. So the people take uh, roofing nails and nail them into these pieces of wood to make the teeth for the horse. Uh, they get glued into this cardboard structure. A, a string runs up through one of these wooden mouthpieces and through a hole in the second one. Uh, and then uh, the final stage is adding fabrics and fake furs and other materials to make it look more horse-like, adding uh, different objects for eyes and and perhaps making some nostrils. And at that point, it really uh, gets very creative. People have made ha- uh, unicorns and other very colorful and unusual creatures um, at that point. Hmm. And you got a little bit of money from the Helen Crichton Foundation, I think, to do a video. Uh, that was like two or three years ago now? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, um, we decided we would um, create a do-it-yourself video for anyone who wasn't around in our area to make these horses. We took our same template design, put it in paper form that you could um, download and print, tape it together, cut it out, put it on the cardboard, and then you can have your own template. And then the video guides you step-by-step on all the things to make this horse. Yeah, so it's a great it's a great tutorial for people who are interested in making one for the festival or, or if people are from, you know, away and and uh, have a need for, <laughs> for a ho- giant horse puppet, there's now online resources to, to help people do that. Yeah. Um, this year uh, is, I guess, the ninth year of the, the Mummers Festival. And every, every year you kind of pick something as a theme and this year one of the, the sub themes I guess is is hobby horses yeah so you've been doing some research and and collecting a bit of information can you tell me a little bit about that yeah yeah this is the year of the holiday beast and um, we wanted to give I mean people have been making these horses for so long and um, perhaps don't fully understand the history behind this tradition in Newfoundland and it's uh, relatives in the UK. So we thought we would really focus in on this. Um, We've been trying to find people who remember this tradition, which is still pretty challenging. We have uh, come across a few people. Um, So we're collecting those stories, trying to understand the finer details of how the hobby horses behaved. Um, This, along with the archival resources that we found, will um, help us create a... We're doing an evening on the history of the holiday beast. That's going to be at the rooms uh, December 14th. Um, So we're hoping to take all this material and put it into a presentation that will give um, somewhat of a comprehensive picture of this tradition from uh, earlier times up until contemporary times. Um, And also we're hoping to have some guest speakers... Um, via Skype from the UK who um, can speak on their traditions. There's one like uh, called Hoodening, and there are a few other um, traditions in the UK that incorporate some sort of a horse-type figure, and we're pretty sure that they're related in some, some way or another. 
Yeah, yeah. But this very much was a kind of a European tradition that, that came here and then kind of went off on its own direction, I guess, in, in Newfoundland. Yeah. yeah Which yeah. is kind of what we do with traditions here, yeah, I, I that, think. Yeah. yeah, I feel like all the, um, well, a lot of the British colonies um, have had some form of uh, mummering uh, in their own tradition. And, of course, they end up taking an, on a new flavor. Yeah. Now, uh, Parade Day, what, what will be happening with the hobby horses there? Um, well, we're hoping to have the largest cavalry of hobby horses to ever <laughs> exist this year. Um, and we're, we're organizing some sort of a, an event that I, and for right now I'm titling it Hot to Trot. And um, we're thinking the, the, a lot of the accounts of hobby horses is that they danced quite awkwardly and in very funny ways. <laughs> and I'm sure you can imagine if uh, one person is under these things, they must look very strange. And, and sometimes there were even two people under them. So it's, it's a funny thing and an interesting thing to see. So we're planning some sort of a, either a dance competition or a, or a, a hot to trot, a trotting sort of a showcase of, of the horses. Yeah. That is to be determined. Okay, good. Well, and, and the parade this year has uh, changed its start location. Uh, so where is it starting and where is it ending? And uh, if people want to bring a hobby horse and participate, how do they, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, well, um, the, this year the Bombers Parade, and we're really excited about this, is it's starting at the Buckmaster Circle Recreation Center. Um, and we're taking a new route this year. Um, oh, it, but it hasn't changed in how we um, structure the day. So there's an hour before the parade called the Rig Up, and in the rec center there'll be uh, tables full of clo- random clothing. People can get dressed up, rigged up on the spot, or you can come in advance. Uh, that's a really nice hour to sort of just hang out and socialize with the mummers. It gets the energy going. Um and then we uh, will be taking the horses through the streets, uh, the, the horses and the mummers. And then, um, and then at the end, we'll be doing a scuff and scoff. So it'll be a, um, a live music. We'll do our hot to trot event during that time. And, um, and there'll be lots of purity syrup and cookies. <laughs> uh, earlier this year, I think it was this year, there was this uh, video that went viral. The, these uh, young <laughs> Scandinavian ladies who were, who were with their toy hobby horses, a little yeah. bit different from our tradition. But, you know, this, this kind of these, they went through these hot to trot kind of equestrian <laughs> activities. And I know you saw this video and like, it seemed like everyone was sharing it on online. Like, do, is this kind of a, is this a, a universal thing? Like that people, uh, is there something about, you know, having an imaginary beast that is, that speaks <laughs> to us in some way? Like, I wonder, I wonder. I mean, we were definitely inspired by what they're doing in Finland and other Scandinavian countries. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely something universal around dressing up and, and hiding yourself and perhaps letting some other uh, side of you come out. And perhaps there's a beast in all of us <laughs> that wants to come out. Uh, <laughs> and uh, this is a great opportunity to let the inner beast out. Yeah, there's something very, you know, like a pagan, uh, you know, yeah. about this kind of this kind of festivity, you know, like it really is. I understand why it is one of these things that has persisted for for centuries because it is 
transformative. Like you, you do become something different. I think you know, and and I know speaking with people who who have been involved in puppetry, that really something kind of magical happens when when you get involved with with a puppet. That it really does have its own life, and you are then are, are kind of transformed as, as well. I think it's set up to be that way, even. Um, having a puppet allows a bit of distance from yourself. The same thing with wearing a mask. It, it conceals your, your everyday self, and there's a, that distance there. I think it gives license to transforming yourself and can happen quite naturally and spontaneously. I'm, I'm curious about one thing that is very clearly a part of the hobby horse tradition in the UK, and, and, and I'm curious to know if you've ever come across anything in, in the, the research here or in your own personal experiences here. In the UK, there seems to be a link between hobby horses and fertility. Yeah. I know, I know <laughs> in, in some of the hobby horse traditions in the UK – there would, you know, sometimes the hobby horse would mount people along its uh, <laughs> along its route, you know, or or women who had not been able to conceive throughout the year, they they would interact in some way with the hobby horse, and then the, the idea was that they would then be more fertile in the in the year to come. Have you, have you ever I, come across this? I or? have heard about this in the UK for sure. Yeah, and the the getting, I think, getting bumped or something yes. like this <laughs> by the horse was a, a way to become more fertile. Yeah. Um, I haven't come across any accounts of that in Newfoundland, um, but I have definitely heard about that in the UK. Yeah. And I think this this other aspect of it, this idea of a bit of terror, is something that we have kind of forgotten about as part of our Christmas traditions here. And I think, you know, there is always this sense, uh, even even in modern Christmas, you know, we tell children, you know, oh, if you're good, Santa will give you mm-hmm. a present. And if you're bad, you know, you might get a lump of coal. <laughs> but but when we look back at Christmas traditions, you know, Santa quite often had like a bad helper, you know, who would like <laughs> whip the child or something like that. And, <laughs> and maybe the hobby horse is part of that, you know, like maybe that part of that having terror is, is it is kind of like a... It is, it is a bit of an emotional release there, I think, in, sure. in some way. And yeah. the same thing with Halloween, I think. that there, there are definite times of the year that are set aside for behaving in ways that we don't in our day-to-day lives. Yeah. I don't think we typically want to invite terror into our lives, but it's still somehow on the periphery here and there. I think that these these holidays give opportunity to sort of play with terror in a way that's safe, in a way that's not too threatening. And when you look back at a lot of the accounts of mummering, it was terrifying. People said they were scared. They ran away. They were like hiding. They found, but, but there was a playfulness and it would be all in good fun. You know, that was the idea. Um, Andre O'Brien has this story, I think, from Cape Royal about a about a hobby horse that chased a man um, into a church. Like he, that, the man was so <laughs> terrified by the hobby horse that he uh, he tried to escape, you know, to sacred ground. Yes, to, to I remember away. this story, and I think that the next day he found the guy. And was like, you know, I have a heart condition. <laughs> you could have actually killed me. You know that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but there, I, there's something about the terror that I think is, if it's done in a fun way, can be quite a release. I, I always say to people, you know, I, I remember that very first that very first year I made a hobby donkey. And I had this <laughs> hobby donkey in the Mummer Special. And, and I made two little children cry. And, and that for me is, uh, I, I take a certain pride <laughs> in that. You know, like yeah. I've kept that Christmas, mm-hmm. that dark Christmas tradition alive for another, yeah. some child will grow up and think, oh, when I was a kid, you know. I, I remember talking to someone from from the Labrador Straits 
And there was almost a sense of, they called it the hobby. And there was almost a sense amongst people that uh, the hobby was almost supernatural. Like mm. it was all, it was an unreal figure and people were very, very frightened of it. And then that fear was almost a, yeah, almost a supernatural kind of fear mm. because it was again, this kind of strange thing and no one really knew what was under that sheet. And maybe it was real. Like maybe it wasn't just a, maybe it wasn't just a costume. Maybe there was some kind of force or something that was behind it. Yeah. Which yeah. I, yeah. I feel the same thing with the Naliuk too, that there's a terror involved and there's almost a supernaturalness to them. Like they can run at speeds faster than a human, which is like kind of beyond, yeah. beyond the regular scope of a human. And the, and the Naliuk tradition, for those who don't know it, is this uh, kind of Labrador Inuit tradition of uh, kind of like a fearsome beast in its own, in its own way. This kind of almost supernatural, creepy, shaggy figure that comes in off the ice. That's right. And often covered in furs and yeah has this real menacing uh thing it's kind of like a a chasing running running of the bulls sort of thing (laughs) chasing kids and making them scared but knowing that there isn't an actual real threat yeah um now you just you just ran a couple workshops outside of st john's you did one in paradise and one in mount pearl How how did they go over what kinds of person came what kinds of people come out to these workshops I don't know, really, but it's, uh, you know, it's usually families. Kids are very interested in this. Um, uh, we have, um, yeah, people in their, like, preteens seem to really take an interest in making these hobby horses. So we had a bunch of families come out for both of these events um, and some adults as well. And, yeah, it seems to be a real mixed bag of people. Yeah. If people want to learn more about the Mummers Festival, where can they get more information? They can go to our website. It's mummersfestival.ca. That's probably the best place to go. We also have a Facebook uh, page, which also has lots of updates. And if they want to find the Hobby Horse template or the, the video, is can they access that through the website as well? Yeah, there's um, in our events section, there's um, a Hobby Horse workshop page. Uh, the video's on that page. And then there's also a section called Traditions if you want to read more about the Hobby Horse in Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm Dale Jarvis. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. Find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Our production assistant is Tara Barrett. We would love to know what you think of the show. Leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page or tweet us at HFNLCA. Thanks for listening.